This morning, now we continue going verse by verse through this book of Philippians. And we pick up naturally where we left off last week. And as a quick reminder where we are in this letter, a few weeks ago, we spent a couple weeks looking at that paragraph there in verses 6 through 11 in Philippians 2. And that, we said, was one of the most famous paragraphs in the whole Bible, and it's about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And then last week, we built on top of that, and we looked at that short paragraph there in verses 12 and 13, which follow. And there, we saw the Bible command us to work out your own salvation, which we said really just means to live in light of being saved. But even more importantly, what we saw there last week, and this is where we're picking up, is we saw something profound that the Bible says in verse 13 of Philippians 2. And that's where the Bible tells us that as we work and will, as we work out our own salvations, ultimately, it is God himself who wills and works within us. So that's where we left off. That was verse 13. Jesus said this week. So this week we will be reading just verses 14 through 16 in Philippians 2. And to understand what we're going to see here, we can think of it this way. If last week was the general response to what Jesus did in verses 6 through 11, and the general response was just to live in light of the salvation you have, now this week is going to be a more detailed application of that, a more specific application of what it looks like to be people who are living out of the salvation we have. So that's what we're going to see in verses 14 through 16. And to be clear, just in case you might have noticed, the paragraph does end in verse 18, not verse 16. But what we're going to see is that next week we'll pick up in the middle of verse 16 because it applies more to what we'll talk about then. So with all that said, that now brings us to an outline of what we're going to be going over this morning. So we're going to go through these verses in three sections. Three sections. First, we're going to look deeper into the backdrop or the setting of this text. And we'll see what we mean by this, but in basic, there's a backdrop to what Paul says here. So we're going to start with that. That's our first section. And then second, we'll see Paul talk about how we're to act in the midst of this setting. So first, the backdrop. Second, how we're to live in the midst of this backdrop. And then third and finally, we'll see how we can do all of this. Meaning the Bible is going to tell us the setting we're in. It's going to tell us what we're supposed to do in that setting. But then our final question, our final point is going to answer the question, yes, but how? The Bible might tell me to do all this, but how can I do what the Bible is calling me to do? So the backdrop first, second, what to do, what we're called to do, third, how we're going to do it. My hope as we go slowly through these verses that by the end of this, of course, we'll see what the Bible is really saying here, but especially this week that we'll see how applicable some of these things in this, these passages really are to us, these verses. So with that said, Let's now dig into our first point together, and that's by looking at the backdrop of the text. And for this, we're just going to reread verses 14 and 15 together. So look down at your Bibles. We're going to do that now, verses 14 and 15 of Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We'll stop there, but now maybe you can see what I mean by the backdrop of the text. Because as you can see, the Bible here is commanding us to act in a certain way, and we'll deal with that in our second point, but it tells us how to act because we find ourselves in a certain setting. Meaning there's a certain backdrop against which we're supposed to live out our commands here. And so what's that setting? 
What's that backdrop? Well, there's actually two parts of the backdrop or two backdrops on our text. And one of them is the minor backdrop, while the other one is the more major backdrop. And to see what I mean, let's first start with the minor backdrop here. And for this, this is said explicitly in verse 15. You can see it for yourself, you look in verse 15, where the Bible says that we live, quote, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's what the Bible says. And this, then, is the most obvious backdrop of the text, the most obvious setting that we find ourselves in. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And to begin to understand what the Bible is saying here, think of what Paul means when he calls this world, this generation we live in, crooked and twisted. Because you can notice these are both shape words, right? They're both shape words, meaning to be crooked, is, is to be not straight, is to be bent, and then to be twisted is to be morphed, but in a, in a bad way. And so in these ways, these words are essentially just mini illustrations of the world we find ourselves in. We live in a world where unfortunately, due to sin, things are crooked, meaning they're not upright, to use the, the Old Testament word. And along with this, we live in a world where people and things are twisted, so they're not just crooked, but they're also twisted and morphed to be in a way that God never intended them to be. So in some, that's our first backdrop. We live as Christians in a world where unfortunately, due to sin, things are messed up. People are messed up. Societies are messed up. Generations are messed up. Or say it another way, God, our loving creator God, intended the world to be a certain way, but now things are not that way that they were meant to be. They're crooked. They're twisted. So that's the first backdrop. And yet before we move on to this, the second backdrop in the text, let's just quickly keep in mind two things, two things when we talk about the world like this, because I think they're important. Two things. First, brothers and sisters, let's keep in mind the gospel. We need to remember the gospel when we talk about the world like this because we have to remember that the gospel very clearly teaches us that on our own, apart from grace and our own sinful nature, we all are equally part of this crooked and twisted generation and world. And I hope we know that in our hearts. And this means, the reason we bring this up, because this means that now as we go forward from here, the only reason that we might be able to live any differently in the midst of this crooked generation is all due to grace. All grace. And so we need to keep that in mind as we read about the backdrop of the world we find in, that we're, we're no different naturally. We're all like this on our own. But then along with this, second, as we read about the world like this being crooked and twisted, we need to keep in mind how reading this is supposed to affect our hearts. It's supposed to affect our hearts in a certain way. And doing this is a good check for us to see where we are as people who are called by God to love this world. Because let's be honest, especially these days in our kind of politically charged world, so often when we, even as Christians, read phrases like this in the Bible about the world being crooked and twisted, so often, if we're honest, we can read this with this strange, unloving, almost triumphant attitude. Meaning we can read that the world we live in is crooked and twisted, and we can start to think this feeling of, yeah, that's them. They're so messed up. 
If only they'd be like us. We need to be careful to not read it this way. And I say that specifically because we have something in Philippians itself from God's word that shows us how we should read this phrase. And to see this and how we should read this and how I think Paul wrote this and intended this, turn with me quickly to Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19. Philippians 3. So it should be just a page to your right. We'll cover this in a few weeks. But notice here, Paul's going to talk about unbelievers again and the world that we live in, but notice how he talks about them here. So this is Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19. In the same exact letter, Paul writes this. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So how does Paul talk about unbelievers who are part of this crooked and twisted generation, whose God is their belly, whose minds are set in earthly things, where you can see it for yourself? Not with some sort of triumphalism, but with tears, with love. And that should be us as well. And so now turn back to Philippians 2, if you can. So that's our first backdrop. We live in a world that is sadly crooked and twisted. But as we see that, let's remember the gospel that teaches us that we are no better. And let's keep in mind that should lead us not to feel some triumphant, politically charged superiority, but compassion and tears. So that's our first backdrop. But as I said earlier, that's actually the minor backdrop and setting of this text. And I know that may sound weird because it's so clear and explicit in verse 15 that we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted world. But as we dive deeper into the text and see what Paul meant here, we see that there's actually a much bigger backdrop to these verses. And that's the backdrop of the story of the Old Testament in Israel under the Old Covenant. And here's what I mean by this. So first, when we read this text, to us modern readers in the 21st century, we think that Paul is mainly telling us just to not be like the world. And although there is a truth to that, what actually was mainly intended here, and what the early Christians who were mainly Jewish in the first century would have heard, is to not be unfaithful like Israel was under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. And this becomes clear when you look at a few phrases that Paul, who remember was a Jew himself, decided to use. To start, look at verse 15 again with that phrase, crooked and twisted generation. So we read that as a description just of our world, and it is. But more famously, Paul is actually quoting God from the Old Testament about the Israelites. God in the Old Testament called the Israelites a crooked and twisted generation when they were unfaithful. The same goes for that term without blemish there in verse 15. God in the Old Testament called the Israelites blemished when they were unfaithful. And finally, the same even goes for that term being children of God there in verse 15. Because there was multiple times in the Old Testament where Israel forsook their God and was unfaithful. And God said, quote, they are no longer children. And the Old Testament verse that summarizes this all in which Paul is referencing here, maybe even sort of citing here, is Deuteronomy 32.5. You don't have to go there if you want. I'll read it out loud. You can if you want. This is Deuteronomy 32.5. And we go here because in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what you're going to see 
what the Lord calls the Israelites who were unfaithful and see how it connects to Philippians 2 here. This is Deuteronomy 32.5. The Bible says this. They, the Israelites, have dealt corruptly with him. That is the Lord. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so now we can see the major backdrop of verse 15. It's actually the Old Testament and Israel and how they were faithless to the Lord. And yet, we'll quickly through this, but yet that's not even all that's about Israel there in these verses. So that's what's cited by Paul in verse 15. But the biggest clue that Paul is talking about Israel mainly is actually in verse 14. Because there, Paul says to, quote, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And again, here on this, we might think that this is a a command just to us to tell us not to complain. And of course, it does include that. But if you know the Old Testament at all, ask yourself this. What was it, especially in the wilderness, that was the number one sign of Israel's lack of faith and trust in God? What was it that was their major sin in the wilderness? It was their grumbling. Their grumbling. And in fact, Paul uses the same word here in Philippians 2 that was used in the Old Testament when it described the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. And if you read the Old Testament, the stories there, especially I encourage you to read the book of Numbers, what you'll see over and over is the people of Israel grumbling and complaining all because they didn't trust their God. Even though God had saved them from Egypt, even though God had said he loved them, they still didn't trust in his goodness and his provision. Instead, they grumbled and they grumbled. And so that's what's really going on here. Yes, the backdrop here is that we shouldn't be like the world, but the bigger backdrop is the bad example of the Israelites in the Old Testament, how they were faithless to the Lord, how they didn't trust the Lord, but instead they grumbled. That now leads us to our second point. So I know it's a lot, so that's the backdrop. And now the backdrop set. Our second point now is how we're to act in this set. And so for this, once again, we're gonna read verses 14 and 15. And there's many things that are said there. We're gonna read them and look for the commands and the ideas of how we're to act in the midst of this backdrop. So look at your Bibles, Philippians 2, 14 through 15 again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So in answer to how we're to act, our second point, there's a bunch of quick things here we'll see first, but then, as we'll see, there's also one major command here for us. As for the quick things, look down at your Bibles at verse 15 again, so we can start with that idea at the end there about shining as lights. And this comes at the end of verse 15 because this is almost a sort of summary way of talking about how we're to look against this backdrop of the dark world that we're in and the dark history of Israel. We're to shine as lights. And this actually is also an Old Testament quotation that Paul is using here. So this comes from Daniel chapter 12, which you might know is prophetic. And Daniel is told that in the future... God's people will shine like stars, shine like lights. And so Paul is saying that this prophecy from Daniel chapter 12 is being fulfilled in the church, in the new covenant, in us. 
So again, this is a summary way of saying how we're to live, we're to shine. And notice, we're to shine in the world. And literally that just reads, in the cosmos. And the Greek word cosmos can be translated just world, but it can also be translated universe. And so the idea here clearly is that this world, this universe is dark. It's crooked, it's twisted. People don't trust in God and that should make us weep. But we as Christians are supposed to be the lights the stars in the midst of this world. There's something, there's supposed to be something unique about us. So that we're the ones who in the midst of this universe shine forth God's very light. So that's shine as lights. But then verse 15 also includes other ideas too. We'll go through these quickly. It says that we're to be without blemish, which just means we're supposed to live lives of as, as sinless lives as possible. Then we're also to be blameless and innocent. And the easiest way to understand what these two words mean is it's to see that when they're combined like that, it's talking about external and internal holiness. Because blameless just means to live in such a way that when people look at you, they can't blame you for certain sins. So that's externally. But then innocent is this idea that internally, the part that only God can see, we're pure there as well. So shine like lights, without blemish, blameless and innocent. And finally, in verse 15, we see the idea of being children of God. And if we know the gospel, we know that if we trust in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into God's family. So we are children of God. But the calling now is to live as children of God. And what do God's children look like? Like God. Like God's son. Like Jesus, with a certain blamelessness and innocence shining his light into his world and so that's that handful of important things we see in verse 15 but we go through those quickly because the major answer to how we're to act against this backdrop in these verses is actually there in verse 14 and we can know that this is the major thing in verse 14 because Paul starts the paragraph off this way but also because technically verse 14 is the only command in our passage. Everything else just stems from verse 14. So verse 14 is the major answer to how we're to act against this backdrop. And yet before we look down at it, I know you probably know what it says, but before we look down and see more of what Paul says there, ask yourself this. So if you've been tracking, we've seen a lot about this text thus far. We've seen the back the big backdrop of shining as lights in our world, as shining as lights and being faithful to the Lord, unlike Old Testament Israel. And we've seen that that includes internal holiness and external holiness, living as children of God. And all these are big things. It's a big calling. So ask yourself this, what would you then think would be the major thing that then we're commanded to do practically in response to all this? And ask it this way, because perhaps with the backdrop of Old Testament Israel, we might be tempted to think that the major thing we need to do is just obey God and keep obeying God because they didn't. That's not the command that's given here. Or perhaps with the backdrop of this crooked and twisted generation, we might think that the command then would be something like to take it back or to make it upright again or something like that. But again, that is not the command here. Instead, what is the only and major command here in this passage? Or to say it with our second point in mind, what is the main way we're to act in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation? We're to do all things without grumbling 
or disputing. Now let's be honest. That seems a little strange to us. To be the main command of our passage and the main answer to how we're to act. When we dig a little bit deeper, we can see how profoundly important this is. And so let's consider this again with the, this idea of not grumbling and disputing with our two backdrops in mind. First, in terms of the backdrop of Israel, and then also in terms of the backdrop of the world we live in. First, in terms of the backdrop of Old Testament Israel, this command makes sense because essentially what it means is we're not to grumble and dispute with one another like they did. Grumbling with God, disputing with one another. And that's, by the way, probably why Paul wrote grumbling and disputing, because grumbling is more of an internal thing, grumbling in your own mind, while disputing is more of arguing externally with other people. And so the idea here is, unlike Israel, we're to not grumble against the Lord. Instead, we're to trust him. We're to trust him. And then also, unlike Israel, we're not supposed to argue and dispute with one another. Instead, we're to love one another. To love one another. And in this way, with that Old Testament backdrop scene, we can see how clever it is for Paul to make not grumbling and not disputing the main commands of our passage. Because let's be clear, these are not just two random commands of things we're not supposed to do, not at all. Instead, this is about our very faith and love. Because Israel's grumbling wasn't mainly an issue of just them complaining. Instead, it was mainly an issue of faith grumbled because they didn't trust in the Lord. And then the same is true of their disputing. It's not that they were just fighting with one another. Instead, the main issue is that they lacked love for God and for one another. So that's our main takeaway when we look at the backdrop of Israel. We're not to grumble against God. Instead, we need to trust Him. And we're not to dispute with one another. Instead, our goal is to love one another. Then that leads us to how this not grumbling and disputing, though, applies with the backdrop of the world we live in. And here, honestly, is where I think our text might be the most applicable to a lot of us here this morning. And that's because, once again, here the answer in verses 14 and 15 to how we're to act in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation we find ourselves in isn't to win it back. It isn't to make sure that Christian morals are upheld and taught everywhere. It isn't to fight against the government or anything like that. Instead, what's the command? It's to make sure that in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation that we never grumble or dispute. Isn't that amazing? Again, let's be honest, this is incredibly tough for us. And not only that, but in many ways, this is almost the exact opposite of what we want to do and the exact opposite of what we see many Christians doing. Because so often, what we see, and honestly, again, what we want to do or sometimes find ourselves doing in the midst of this fallen world is complaint, is grumble, is dispute. When we see the world going a certain way or, and we don't like it, or when we get around other people who don't like it, or when we get on social media or read the news, again, our immediate response often is to complain, is to grumble or dispute and argue against those who don't agree with us. But once again, brother and sister in Christ, please don't hear me saying this. Look at what God says to us in his word here. That is not to be our response. In fact, that is a clear disobedience 
to what God tells us to do here. Instead, what's our response to be to no matter what, do all things without grumbling or disputing? And so the application is yes. We do live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The Bible tells us so. But also our commanded response here this morning in the midst of this crooked and twisted world is to never complain. And of course, this command applies to complaining in your home. This command, of course, applies to unkindly disputing at work. This command applies to grumbling in your own personal thoughts. And of course, it applies to how we act in society. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean that we become people who just don't care or that we don't try to engage and love the world, but with crystal clarity this morning, the Bible tells us, he commands us, our God commands us, that in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, we are to never dispute or grumble. So that's then the answer to our second point of how we're to act in the midst of this setting, in this backdrop. We're to shine as light, striving to live without blemish, blameless and innocent, children of God, and above all, we are to never grumble and dispute, which finally brings us to our third point. And that's by looking at how we're to do this. Because let's be honest, verses 14 and 15 are jam-packed with a lot of things. That's a big calling. With the backdrop of this crooked and twisted generation, these are a lot of commands. And with those backdrops, the world we live in and Old Testament Israel, now it can seem fearful to think how in the world we can start to live in the way that God has called us to live. Because we should know that in our hearts, this is, this is incredibly difficult and on our own, we are no different. So how can we be people who don't grumble? How can we be people who trust God and love one another and love our God? Well, the answer is in verse 16. Before this, we're now gonna reread all of verses 14 through 16. But as we do so, notice the first thing that Paul says to begin verse 16. So let's do that now. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So how can we do this? By holding fast to the word of life. And to be honest, there's two different ways that, that can be read there, that phrase there in verse 16. First, you can read it as just another thing to do. And that would be, you know, don't complain, be children of God without blemish, shine like lights and hold fast to the word of life. But there's also a second way to read it. And that's by reading, reading that I-N-G word, holding fast, as the means to everything else that Paul already talked about in verses 14 and 15. And in this way, the text now reads, don't complain, be children of God, shine like lights. And how? By holding fast to the word of life. And many biblical scholars and I myself take it that way. And I think that's the best way to read it, not only because it makes the most sense grammatically and how Paul write it, but also because this idea runs throughout the whole entire New Testament. Because what we see here is the ultimate answer to how we can live in such a way in the world and how we can be faithful unlike faithless Israel. And how is it? By holding fast to 
by clinging to the message of the gospel about Jesus Christ that we have. By letting the message of Jesus mean so much to you that it totally changes your life. That it totally changes your grumbling. And each word of this phrase matters a lot. We hold fast to the word, meaning we we really cling to it for dear life, if you will. And what do we cling to? The word, meaning the message. The word word and message are the same in the original Greek. And so we don't cling to our actions. We don't cling to how good we are. And this is important. We don't even cling to our faith. That's not what we cling to. It's not about how good our faith is. Instead, we cling to a message the message. We cling to the good news of what Jesus did in history, of what he's doing now and what he's going to do in the future. And specifically, we cling to the word, the message of life. We hold fast to this message that gives true life, true vitality, everlasting life, life that can only come through Christ. And so the point is, again, this is how we can act the way we're supposed to act, verses 14 and 15. This is how we can shine in the midst of this backdrop by holding fast to the gospel message of life. And I mean really cling to it. And to understand this more, think with me just how this works. And think how this really fits in the midst of these two backdrops because this is so helpful. First, think again about how this can enable us to shine in the midst of the world we find ourselves in. This is a crooked and twisted generation, so how will we be able to not grumble? How will we be able to obey what we're called to do in verses 14 through 15? Well, by really believing what we say we believe. By knowing the gospel to be true, to be true of history in the past and what Jesus did, to be true of the present and what he's doing, to be true of the future, because think of it this way. If we really cling to that message that defines our lives, we really hold fast to the word of life, then we will live differently in this world. Not only will it lead us to want to obey our God and love him, not only will it lead us to want to share the message it will, but then when it comes to the world and how it's all going, we won't be so complaining or disputing. And why? Because we know that our God has it in total control. The gospel has proven that he has a plan that he's always had a plan, that because we're in Christ, we're on his side, and the gospel has even told us the very ending. And so now we can live in a way that engages the world with love, but shows that we ultimately don't need to fret. We don't need to complain. We don't need to argue, all because we really trust our God. Because we really trust our risen and reigning King Jesus and the purpose he has for this world. So that's why holding fast to the gospel enables us to live in the way we're called to live in the backdrop of the world. But finally, also consider how clinging to the gospel enables us to not be faithless like the Old Testament Israelites were. And that's by emphasizing that this word of life that we believe is truly the the new covenant, final message of the gospel that we fully have that they, Old Testament Israel, didn't have. And we don't have time to dig into this in too much depth, but in brief, we should know that this is also what Paul, who remembers a Jew himself and who had lived underneath the old covenant, is probably referencing here. 
And that's why it's probably coming here at this place in Philippians, because the point is that Jesus has done what needed to be done in verses 6 through 11. So now we have this superior word of life. We have this gospel. And so by clinging to this message, we won't be faithless like Old Testament Israel. By clinging to this gospel message, we won't be defined by grumbling. And so some of our last point then, this means to be clear that the way we live, how we're called to live in verses 14 and 15 only comes by us being gospel people. Gospel people. By people who love the gospel, hold fast to the gospel, really cling to the gospel and the life it gives. And as a result, we'll live differently. We'll obey our God more. We'll live as his children. And finally, we won't get so caught up in the world and the generation we find ourselves in and complain. And nor will we be like the faithless Israelites and just grumble and grumble and grumble. Instead, we will be a people of robust trust. Robust trust in our God all because of the gospel. So that's our text. We will pick up in the middle of verse 16 next week. But in summary, we've covered verses 14 through 16 in three parts here this morning. First, we saw the backdrop of our text. And we saw that the backdrop here is the world we live in, the faithlessness of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And second, we saw how we're to act in the midst of this backdrop in this setting and how we're to shine. We're to seek to be blameless and innocent, living as children of God. And above all, we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing whether that's against God or against this world. And then third and finally, we saw how we can do this, and that's by holding fast to and clinging to the word of life. So that's our passage. But now as we close, I just quickly want to make one application. Because although there are many applications for us, especially on that command to do all things without grumbling, or disputing. And I do hope that you take that command from here this morning and go home or maybe write it down right now and really apply it to your life. Although there's many applications here, there is just one overarching thing I want us to leave here with this morning. And that application is this. Brother and sister in Christ, let it be your main defining characteristic of your life. And no matter what, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, that you hold fast to the word of life. Really hold fast to it, cling to the gospel. And I say this, that this is the big overarching takeaway because even as Christians, we can so easily forget how central this needs to be. Because as we said, if we really do this, it'll change everything else about how we live. It'll, of course, make us want to live for Christ more. But then also, again, when it comes to the world, it'll give us a special peace and trust in our God with whatever's going on. But on the other hand, if we become people who think that the gospel message is just the way into Christianity, and then we start living our Christianity and kind of forget about it or downplay it, then our faith can subtly become all about morals or all about changing society or all about anything else. And then subtly we can start to get a little confused and honestly, that's subtly when we can start to become unloving. And why? All because we've mistaken the point of Christianity. Because the point of Christianity and why we're here isn't just to live moral lives, it's to embrace 
Christ and glorify him and his gospel, to embrace his gospel, to love his gospel, to live in light of his gospel, to share his gospel. And so the big application for us, each of us, is to make sure that your Christian life, that your whole life is defined by the message about Jesus that you believe. And so as a church, let's do that here at ECC. Let's be a people who cling to this gospel, to this word of life, together as a church and individually, because by doing so, by God's grace, we will then become people who grumble and dispute less and less and less. And we will become people who then instead go out as the children of God that we are and shine like lights in the midst of this world. Amen. 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 Church, let's pray.